Today is Family Sunday, and as I sort of mentioned before, I sort of alluded to the, the idea that once a month we like to have our elementary kids with us um, for the service and participating in the service. Uh, because of a word that we talk about a lot with our staff, especially, uh, we also talk about this with elders and deacons and other leaders, we talk about intergenerational ministry. Intergenerational ministry. We want that to be something that happens not just in that cloistered place called children's ministry that's downstairs, not where the adults are. We want that to happen in a way that connects generations. Uh, so in fact, uh, many of you were hearing um, Samuel play the piano while Eric was playing guitar. That song is a song that we've sung in worship here, but our kids are also doing it. That's part of intergenerational ministry. In fact, Eric has been weaving songs that the kids are learning into ministry and and adult worship here, and vice versa, using songs downstairs. That's an example of intergenerational ministry. And the reason that I bring that up on Family Sunday is because we're talking today about children. And we're going to ask three questions in just a second here about, about children. What are they? It's not a, not a bad question to ask, actually. What are they? Um, whose are they? And, uh, and how do we help them become who God made them to be? We'll get there in just a few minutes, but I, but I bring this up about children because there's this problem. There's this sort of big-time discussion that many of you may not be aware of, but this big-time discussion has been going on in, uh, in churches in America for the last 15 years, especially among youth and children's ministers. Uh, lots of folks in church ministry are having a big-time discussion for the last 15 years. It's really sort of ramped up and, and, and gained lots of speed and traction for about the last six to six and this discussion is one about which I personally am very passionate. Um, it's one that I care a lot about. It's a big-time discussion that revolves around the problem of our youth, the next generation, not being discipled. Not being discipled well enough. And I'm going to linger here a bit in the introduction today. We'll get to the passage in Deuteronomy 6. We'll answer the questions eventually. But I want to linger in this introduction for a while today because I want you to feel the weight of the problem. The important issue of our children not being trained well. And really the problem is not just that we don't have information to tell them. That's not so much the problem. The problem is that we do not show them what it means to follow Jesus. They are not being taught the well of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ because they're not being shown from adults around them. And this isn't just a church problem, though that is part of it. We're in partnership with families. It's a problem for for which both the church and the family is responsible. In fact, I think more of the problem exists in our families, frankly, than we would care to admit. And the facts of the matter in this discussion... And every bit of research that you can find on the issue, make it clear that we are not effectively discipling our own children and youth. Numerous studies over the last decade have shown this. There's a man named Christian Smith at the University of Notre Dame who wrote a famous book called Soul Searching. Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And in this book, he compiled quite a bit of evidence, and he uh, conducted his own survey of 3,000 American teenagers to determine their religious belief system. And what he found is that the, uh, the religious beliefs of our teenagers are, are far more shaped by the wider culture than we would care to admit. And the religious belief system that they hold is what he calls moralistic, therapeutic, Deism. 
Moralistic therapeutic deism. And there are five characteristics of it, and we're going to show you what those are. Here, number one, moralistic therapeutic deism believes that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay, not bad. Number two, this God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Fairness is, of course, a huge value in our, in our world today. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, not just Christianity. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. This is the God in my pocket until I need him kind of God. Number five, good people will go to heaven when they die. This is moralistic therapeutic deism. And it basically is what our young people believe. And friends, that is tragic. It's tragic because there is no mention of God as holy, no mention of sin or the need for a Savior, and the gospel of God is holy, I am not, Jesus saved me, has nothing to do with moralistic therapeutic deism. And this moralistic therapeutic deism is a consumeristic cafeteria churchianity that is not at all about the goal of life as the glory of God. But it is all about having God in my back pocket for when I might need him because it might help me later on my terms. And friends, make no mistake. Do not put your heads in the sand. This is exactly what I experienced in my 12 years of full-time youth ministry in the local church with many of the kids we'd call our own. Moralistic therapeutic deism is the watered-down churchianity faith of tons of kids who play church but do not know Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. Don't put your heads in the sand. Because the problem is not the wider culture. The problem is that this is learned from their own families. The problem is that moralistic therapeutic deism is a learned behavior, learned from adults who claim with their mouths to love and follow God on Sunday morning, but whose lifestyle and values the rest of the week reveal the lie of the Sunday morning dress-up dog and pony show. We tell ourselves, oh, but this isn't my kids. My kids are in church. They grew up going to VBS. I help them do memory verses and prepare for the children's choir and the Christmas play. They've gone to youth group and they've gone to Christian concerts. They've worn the t-shirt to school next day. I play Christian radio in the car. Matthew 7, 22 and 23 say this, the words of Jesus. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? My version of that is this. Lord, Lord, did we not put the Christian fish on the back of our cars and wear the I Love Jesus t-shirts? And did I not pass out food with the church youth group? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Friends, being present and accounted for is not the same as being present and engaged with God. Anyone can play the game on the outside to look like a whitewashed tomb. And I hope 
And I pray that your kids are not moralistic, therapeutic deism. But those are the basic beliefs of kids who grew up in a country where 70% of adults self-report believing in a personal God who is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who still rules it today. How does that happen? A recent survey showed that 9% of the adult population has a worldview that could be called biblical. 70% report believing in a personal God who is all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe who still rules it today. And yet 9% of adults have what can be called the biblical worldview. And 0.5% of young adults ages 19 to 23 can be considered a biblical worldview. 0.5% of youth ages 19 to 23 have what can be called a biblical worldview. Something is broken. And our children will not be made into disciples of Christ by getting them into church and making Jesus fun. Won't happen. I lived the model of youth ministry for the last 30, 40 years that has been pretty much a failure to disciple our kids. Primarily because it's not I'm not telling them, oh, I'm telling them. I preach hard every week to the kids in the 12 years of youth ministry. I took Bible study very, very seriously. We did small groups. We did fun stuff too. But six to seven kids want to come and learn about Jesus in the Bible study. But six times will come to every single fun thing we ever did. wonder if the kids made that decision themselves. Probably. They probably did. Moralistic therapeutic deism is learned. Mark it well. I said many times in youth ministry, and I stand behind it today, when our kids graduate from high school, they've graduated from their faith the vast majority of the time. And many of them are playing church because they've learned it and they've been taught to. And the answer to the problem straight up, the reason they graduate from their faith when they graduate from high school, isn't because I'm not telling him or our youth ministry doesn't do it well enough or our children's ministry doesn't have information to give them and doesn't reiterate the same story three times in three different contexts each week. It's the reason that they've learned it from parents who say one thing Sunday and live different values the rest of the week. So whatever it is that we say cannot overcome what happens when they're with you. What you do with your kids must be in concert with what they hear. Otherwise, they won't believe what you're selling. It's not going to happen. Because kids, they end up intuiting. They end up catching almost by osmosis the practices of their parents and their families outside of when we get them at church. So what, I, so what they really end up believing, and now we're going to meddle, what they really end up believing is that never missing a soccer practice is of utmost importance. What they really end up believing is that we dress up for the UT Vols game and we, we, we carve that time out because that's important. Worship of God, eh, take it or leave it. They end up living like their parents 
Sports just gets to be the first one because it's because it's a new religion in America. It just gets to be the first target. But in any family, your kids will end up intuiting by osmosis practically. They'll end up catching your values for whatever it is that could be an idol that replaces a relationship with God. It can be materialism. It could be worldly success. It could be even education. It could be things we call good, professional ladder climbing, financial security. Friends, the, the personal peace and affluence gospel are discipling your kids if what I say and how you act don't match up. The heart of the matter is that you cannot, you cannot drop your kid off at church and expect it to change their lives if you do not show it with your own changed life. You have got to take personal responsibility. Man up! And take personal responsibility for discipling your children. You've got to show up. Because your parent-child relationship is too strong for the world's best youth pastor to overcome if you do not lead them to a love of your Savior Jesus and you don't show them. We could have the best children's and youth ministry programs on the planet. And it still cannot overcome what your child picks up from you at home. It has got to be a partnership of family and church. And it's simply a matter of practical time. We don't have them enough. You do. Many times studies recently have shown that the average family that has two kids ends up spending about seven and a half hours a day in structured and unstructured time with your children. Here at church, we have them for a total, if they come 100% of the time a week, of four hours. Which means that if each one of these paintballs represents one week, four hours of time that we have your kid for Christian education and instruction, every week we put in one of those and we get in the year this much. And moralistic therapeutic deism happens when this is what they get. And it doesn't match what you say or what you do. And what you say and what you do in terms of how much time you have them is so much that our possible responsibility to do it for you isn't going to do it. Thirteen times more is a conservative estimate of how much your kids are with you. It's killing our kids, and we have to take personal responsibility for discipling them. So how do we fix this? I think we fix this by answering three questions today. Uh, the first is sort of a simple-sounding and almost silly question, but, but what are they? What are kids? <laughs> That's a good question, actually. What are they? They just take my money. Um, what are kids? Whose are they? 
And how do we, uh, how do we create an environment where they can become who God made them to be? So let, let's just answer the first one here. What are they? They're little animals who suck up all your money. Well, that's partially true, but not totally. Let me ask you a question first. <laughs> and it's a question that we end up asking sort of after the fact for most of us. Why did you have kids? Let me ask it this way. Why do you have kids? How long till after you had kids did you end up actually asking that question? <laughs> but really, I mean, why, why do we have kids? Why do we have children? We don't have time to go through all this in Genesis, and, and I spent about three hours uh, on, on this Genesis piece at the beginning, but we don't have time to do it all. So just let me, let me say long story short, Adam and Eve in Genesis in the garden learned that making children is about producing children of God. It's not about producing Wakefield kids. And not, it's not about producing kids who bear your last name. Making children who follow God is the reason why Adam and Eve reproduced in the first place. Just think about that word for a second. Reproduce. To produce again. Produce what again is the question. Are we reproducing biology in our kids Literally, yes. I mean, there is biology. There's DNA stuff being put in them. They, they carry our personal genetics. Are we reproducing our last name? Is, is it about carrying on the family name? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that growing up thinking, you know what, is that the goal? Carrying on the family's last name? What are we reproducing? What's the goal of your reproduction of kids? If you look at most families in America today, the goal is producing athletes, doctors, People who can retire in security. That's the goal for many families, frankly. Let's be, let's be frank about it. When you look at their time and their energy and their resources and what they're doing with their kids, how much of their time and effort and energy and resources is into discipling them into somebody who will be good out in the world? Tons of it. What are we reproducing in Genesis? And this is a key concept for the answer to this first question. In Genesis, Adam and Eve weren't concerned about reproducing their own DNA or their last name or making kids who are worldly successes. Adam and Eve were reproducing, and this is the key, they were reproducing the creative work of God. That's what they were doing. That's what Christians do. They reproduce the creative work of God. The first few chapters in Genesis are where God says, Now see, this is why I made you. Now you go do and likewise. You, you go and you do likewise. They reproduced what God has already produced in them. And I want to I say that again slowly so you understand really what I'm saying. That is way more profound than just mere biology. They reproduce what God has already produced in them. In the very first pages of Scripture is discipleship. Is is, is creating a place where people will learn to love and follow Jesus Christ. This reproduction is possible. If you're taking notes, there's a little formula I wrote down here. It's possible because of a, a few things. Number one, we bear God's image. So if you're writing down the formula and taking notes, number one is we bear God's image. Plus, number two, we're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. So we bear God's image. We were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Plus, number three, practically, we have appropriate biological equipment. Add those three together and equals this, reproducing the work that God has already produced in you. 
the first chapters of Genesis are not about making a family name so that you can perpetuate your last name. The first chapters of Genesis are about making for himself a family, God making for himself a family that you and I get to help populate. That's what's going on at the beginning of the entire Bible. So long story short, and these are the two blanks we've got today. What are children? They're the same as you and me. They're learners. Learners of God. Learners of the goodness and the glories of God. Why do I exist? I exist to learn about the creator who made me. I'm a disciple. Children are disciples. Created to experience and make known God's glory. And there's an inherent assumption about this that, yes, that's what they are, but but there's an assumption about this that we need to understand. That means that they grow. And that doesn't, that doesn't stop. You're never going to get to the end of how awesome God is. You're not going to get there. This side of heaven, that side of heaven. So we are all learners. And there's an inherent assumption of growth. In the first chapters of Genesis, we see it. It's in Deuteronomy 6, which we'll come back to in a second, which is where it says to teach God's command diligently to your children. It's in Proverbs 22, 6, where it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Training is growth. It's even at the end of Luke 2, where it talks about Jesus himself, where it talks about Jesus' growth as a child. It says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. It's in Ephesians 6, 4, where fathers are told to bring up. That's growth right there, to train, to bring up, to disciple. That's the root meaning of disciple is to teach, to train their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All of these passages and and, and many others in scriptures assume that children are learners of God's goodness and glory. That's what they are. So whose are they? You can see where I'm going clearly. If God is building for himself a family, whose are they? They're not yours. They're not mine. They're God's. God the Father is the author of life. They are first and foremost his children. And his claims on your life and on theirs should never be usurped by our purposes. Think about that for a moment. How many of our kids have their purposes in life shaped, even usurped by us for our purposes? Helicopter parents are nothing new. God is the author of life means that his claims on their life are the reason you've been given them. God is called the author of life in Acts 3. We talked about that about uh, four or five weeks ago. In Acts 3.15, God is called the author of life. In Jeremiah 1.5, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is God speaking. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Psalm 139 is a great passage uh, for this concept of God being the author of life. In Psalm 139.13, this is David writing to the Lord. David says, for you, speaking to God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Colossians 1.16, which is a cool, cool passage, was speaking of the preeminence of Christ. Christ is authority over, over all things. And it says this in 1.16, For by him, that is Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or your kids. 
all things. It doesn't say most everything except for what is yours. It says all things, and that includes our kids, were created through him, and here it is, for him. For his glory. Kids are a precious gift from God, a resource to be stewarded in love so that they will fulfill the purpose for which God created them. That's what kids are. They're learners. They're disciples. They're a resource to be stewarded by us in love so that they will fulfill the purpose for which God created them. Abraham, the great father of the faith, understood this in Genesis 22 when he said, Yes, I will offer my son Isaac if you want me to, Lord. His only son, Isaac. He understood that Isaac was not his own son to be used for his purposes. He understood that Isaac, his son, was a gift from God, a resource to be stewarded in love, so that Isaac would fulfill the purpose for which he was created. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, understood this. It's why she cried out to God and made a vow in 1 Samuel 1. Because she was barren, it says she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And later on, when that prayer is answered, she says this, verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. Samuel's mother understood that a son was a precious gift from God to be stewarded in love so that they, so that he, so that your daughter, so that your son will fulfill the purpose for which God created them, not you, not me. How often do we get that upside down? Pretty sure we think we're creating kids in our image a lot more than we'd care to admit. Mary, the mother of Jesus, understood that this son of hers was a precious resource to be stewarded in love. On loan from God. So children are given on loan to us by the author of life who grants us the privilege of loving that child in a way that brings him glory, not necessarily us. So how do we, how do we train them in the way they should go? How do, we, how do we create an environment where our children become who God created them to be? Because the fact that they're God's children and they were created to be learners and glorifiers of him informs how we answer this question. Turn to Deuteronomy 6 for just a minute here. We're going to end with this passage in Deuteronomy 6. We'll go all the way from 4 to 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. It's on page 130 in the Pew Bibles. Helps us answer this question of how do we create an environment, a place for them to become who God made them to be. It says this, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. Now Moses had just uh, told them the Ten Commandments, and now he's reiterating to them the importance of what is called the, the greatest commandment. And that greatest commandment is going to come here in just a second. But he starts off by saying the Lord is one. There's one God. There aren't others. There's one almighty God. That's got to be fundamental. And so the greatest commandment, here it is, number f- uh, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Not part of it, not some of it, not as much as I can muster. All, all, all. There is no part of us that is not included in all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Awesome words. 
that say that we as the people of God are supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. Can that be said of us? Can that be said of you? Is your passionate love for Jesus Christ and his awesome gift of salvation from sin such that it can be said that he has all of your heart, all of your soul, every piece, every inch, every nook and cranny of you is something over which Christ is authority. Christ is Lord of every inch of us. And if you're going to parent parent children who love God and love bringing Him glory, they're going to have to see it first in you because you love God. You've got to love Him with a fire in your belly that nothing else deserves receiving. Verse 6 says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Not somebody else's, on your heart. It's like saying you have to carry these commands around with you. They have to be a part of you. And here comes the parenting part, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Notice the two pairs of opposites. It says when you sit and when you walk, when you lie down and when you rise. It's saying you have to teach them diligently all the time in all places, in every activity, going to the grocery store with your child. If you love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your might, is going to end up being a discipleship opportunity. Taking your kids on errands with you has got to be an opportunity for you to train them in love of Jesus Christ. If you don't, you're missing. You're missing the God-given opportunities given right here. There is no time, there is no place where you cannot and should not be teaching your kids about what it looks like to love God with all your heart. And you've got to take personal responsibility for them seeing that in you. Verses 8 and 9 are interesting verses. The Jews took them literally. Verses 8 and 9, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They had little boxes that they would put around uh, their, their wrists and put them on their heads and they would put scriptures on their doorposts so that the words of God, so that the commands of God would be everywhere. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, verse 9, and on your gates. So I, so I want to ask you, is the word of God, is the word of God seen, heard, spoken from your lips Does your child watch you study and read and love the Word of God in your house? Because if they don't, that one little thing down there where they hear it from me won't undo when they don't from you. Do your kids know that you love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your might? Do they know it from you personally? Can they sense it in your words, in your use of time, 
in your use of money, by the way you live your life? Has your child ever seen you weep over your own sin or fault or frailty? As you tell them, I'm sorry, Because if you don't picture redemption for them, they won't believe it. The personal responsibility we have to picture that by living it, by speaking it, by telling of the wonders of God, by having the word of God be heard in your home, has got to be there. Have your kids heard you as you pray for them and squeeze them tight and ask, Lord, make my children kingdom warriors who love you above all else. Do they hear that from you? That is how you help God's child on loan to you become who God created him or her to be. You nurture and surround that child with an environment in your home where Jesus Christ is loved beyond all else and where his words are treasured and obeyed. Father in heaven, it is, it is our failure to love you with our whole hearts that we admit to you Forgive us, Lord, for loving the created things and not the Creator, for upending the way that you've deserved all praise and glory, and we've stolen it from you. We've we've cheated you. Father, forgive us. Enable us. Strengthen us. Give us your Holy Spirit. Give us courage. Help us to man up so that we would raise children who love you, who can see no purpose in life other than using everything that you've given them on loan for the sake of your cause and your glory so that they will in turn reproduce the work that you've produced in them. Father, give us a personal vision. Whether we are a mom or a dad or an aunt or an uncle, a grandparent, a teacher at church or in this community, Wherever we are, Lord, give us opportunities to be a part of creating an environment where these precious gifts on loan to us from you can become who you created them to be, Lord. In your son's precious name, we ask these things. Amen.